Chapter 23 is uh, where we are. We're, um, as you know, the book of Acts has 28 chapters, so we're nearing uh, the end of our study. I mean, we've got several weeks, but uh, Paul is, um, is, as we're in chapter 23, uh, Paul is in um, Jerusalem, and he is under threat as you might remember from last week, at least I think you might remember from last week. But um, he has appeared before the Sanhedrin in the earlier part of the chapter, and he brought up the resurrection, and that was a shrewd strategy on his part to divide the Sanhedrin, to divide the council, which he was successful in doing. And um, therefore, as the Pharisees said in verse 9, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And because they were divided, um, he was uh, taken back to the barracks in the, um, in, in the uh, prison at the basement in Antonio Fortress in the northwest corner of Temple Mount. Then the Lord appeared to him, encouraging him in verse 11, that he would eventually be going to Rome where he would testify for him there. Verse 12, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they killed Paul. Verse 13 tells us how many took this vow. Forty. That's a significant number. The text is, uh, I mean, Luke is saying more than 40, so we're not sure. I'm assuming it isn't that much more than 40, but... That's an extraordinary number that are involved in this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and the elders. They would be the spiritual leaders of Israel at that time. We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, if we're to take that as factual, that means they all starve to death (laughs) because they do not succeed in killing Paul. So I'm, that's supposed to be a little joke, and three of you got it. I'm not sure the rest of you did. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Yes, right. <laughs> now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune. Now, remember, that's the Roman military officer. To bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So that's, in essence, the plot. It involves these 40-plus individuals plus the Sanhedrin, plus trying to get the tribune involved as well. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister, and the word that's used there would indicate he's probably a teenager. So, I mean, he's not a little tiny boy. He's not an adult teenager. Heard of the ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Let me stop here for just a minute. We know nothing about Paul's family. Nothing. There's nothing in the Bible, not, no other references in the New Testament that help us to understand anything about his family. Is this his only sister? How many siblings that we don't know? The Bible is silent on that. It's just really, it's an interesting tidbit of information that Luke shares with us. And aren't you frustrated by that? I, I mean, I am. I'm just sort of, I mean, I'm sort of interested. I'd like to know his family. I'd like to know how many siblings he had. I'd like to know if they're followers of Christ. I'd like to know about his parents. I mean, we know some because they're all from Tarsus. So, I mean, remember that? So at least that means she, his sister, had moved down to Jerusalem. 
I mean, at least you can, I mean, that's a legitimate inference to make that she had moved down. And if she did, presumably her husband did, and at least one of their children did. You know, and isn't that frustrating? You want to know, please tell us more about this. But the text is totally silent. This is the only reference to any member of Paul's family in, in terms of any bunch of respect. Well, and, and how is it that he would have overheard this? Because, I mean, you wouldn't think they'd be talking openly about this. Well, I mean, thank you. That's exactly, that was the other thing I was going to bring up. How in the world did he get word of this? Is he uh, an aide, a servant? Does he work for one of the guys in Sanhedrin? Does he work? I mean, you just, it's all of these open questions. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Luke about this. I'm going to say, I really am criticizing you. And of course, in criticizing Luke, I'm criticizing the Holy Spirit. So I won't do that. But it's just, I'm being a little facetious here. But it's just one of those really interesting tidbits of information. It just begs for more. But the text chooses not to do that. So... And it isn't that important, I guess, in the larger scheme of things. So Paul now is aware of this conspiracy. So verse 12, uh, verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions. Now remember, uh, a centurion is a military officer that is in charge of 100 soldiers. So this is somewhat a little bit higher in the rank and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune. And Paul said, and said, Paul, the prisoner called me, asked me to bring this young man to you, that he has something to say to you. Tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire some more, what, more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man. Again, that phrase, young man, Yaniskan, indicates a young teenager type of age. Tell no one, he says, tell no one you've informed me of these things. So, you know, however this occurred, however he heard of this, God uses this to preserve Paul's life. Because I'm telling you, if over 40 men taking this kind of vow, they will succeed in killing Paul. So God's superintending these events to make sure that does not happen. That does not happen. To me, what is even more astonishing is what the Tribune does now. And I want you to pay careful attention as to how many guards of Paul there are. You still with me? Verse 23, then he called, he would be the Tribune, Two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Now, math, if you're doing your math, how many is that? 470. That is about half of a cohort. A cohort is one of the divisions of the Roman legion, a thousand soldiers. So, I mean, this is extraordinary. This tribune is assigning 470 guards to take Paul to Caesarea. Now, if you look, I mean, any one of, most, almost any one of the maps that I've given to you, but um, the one on page 9 could, could show you, but he, he's in Jerusalem, and Caesarea is northwest of Jerusalem. It's about, if 
straight as the crow flies, it's about 62 miles. So, I mean, it isn't that long of a journey, but yet it's a significant journey because Jerusalem sits 2,500 feet above sea level, the Judean mountains, and so he's going to have to go down. It's very rugged territory where lots of assassins could hide. So, I mean, this is, this is a very wise thing for the Tribune to do, to be certain Paul is not killed. He sends, just, to me, that's an astonishing number, 470 men to guard, guard one prisoner. But he's a prisoner of some repute, and he's a Roman citizen. I mean, it's just all of these things. It's an extremely important uh, issue for this Tribune. They go to Caesarea at the third hour. That would be 9 p.m. of the night. And so they're, why do you think he's going at night? For security reasons. That's, that's, that's the point. Verse uh, 24, also provide mounts for Paul to ride. What's a mount? Horse. A horse. And bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And then verse 26 is a letter that this tribune, whose name we see in verse 26, is Claudius Lysias. But anyway, he carries a letter with him. Now, Felix, um, can I explain this? Is there ever I explain this to you? I mean, I don't want you to get lost in the weeds of all this history. But um, when uh, Rome took over Judea and made it a Roman province in AD 6, they deposed Archelaus and made uh, it a Roman uh, province, that meant it would be administered by a governor, and that governor would sit in Caesarea. Who is the most famous governor? Pontius Pilate. He's the most famous one. Everyone knows knows about him. But here is another one of these governors, and Felix is not as well known, but nonetheless he is a governor. He will be the governor of Judea, uh, uh, that political official, from A.D. 52 to A.D. 59. So he's, um, he's a governor, but he's not real strong, and he's not popular. Rarely were they popular. But what he, what he wants to do now, he, I'm talking about the Tribune, what he wants to do is get Paul to have a trial before the governor of the, province, the Roman province of Judea. And so that's, in, in one sense, that's a very shrewd move on his part because he wants to get all of this out of his hands and pass it on to the governor. You take care of this. This is so volatile and so difficult for me, and you don't want me stirring up stuff in Jerusalem, so you take it from here. <laughs> so what he does, and this, this is a very normal practice in the Roman Empire, the prisoner who is heavily guarded, as you already know, he sends a letter. Now, I doubt Paul carries the letter. One of the other Roman officers does, but nonetheless, we have a, Luke gives us a copy of the letter in verse 26 through 30. Let me read the letter to you. Claudius Lysias. Now, Claudius Lysias is the name of the Roman tribune who has sent Paul. To his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. That is the most important piece of information he's communicating. This guy's a Roman citizen, which automatically means 
Felix must treat him with all the due process rights that a Roman citizen had. That just making that emphasis. Verse 26, uh, 28, excuse me. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, that meaning the Sanhedrin. I found that he had been accused about questions of their law being charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Another very important piece of information. In effect, Claudius is saying, I don't really find anything wrong with this guy. There's, it's their law. They're all upset about that. But it really doesn't have anything to do with Rome. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So what is that telling us? Those members of the Sanhedrin and others who brought the charges, they're going to have to travel to Caesarea, and they're going to have to stand before Felix, the Roman governor, and present their evidence. So, I mean, the tribune of Claudius is being really, really smart here. He's taking a very volatile issue, getting it off of his plate and putting it on the plate of the governor. And he's also telling the Jewish leaders, now, you got to take this to the Roman governor. You have to present all the evidence to him. Because I've told him who he is, I've told him he's a Roman citizen, and I've said I couldn't find anything wrong with him, but you're going to have to prove it now to them. So it's really a shrewd thing for him to do, pass it off to Felix the governor. And I'm gonna, I think it's neat that Luke gives us the text of the letter for us to be able to read. So now what happens? Verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul, brought him to by night to Antipatris. Again, if you really are interested, that's right along the coast, just a few miles south of Caesarea. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. So again, uh, Antipatris is really, really close, just a little bit south of Caesarea, all of the foot soldiers and everything are gone. The 70 horsemen take Paul to Caesarea. When they come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he was asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he is Felix, when he learned that he, Paul, was from Cilicia, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. Now, I wish I could take you now all to Israel. And we go to Caesarea. We'd walk through the great theater that's there that's still functioning. We walk out along the coast, and there's a, a, an island that protrudes out into the Mediterranean. That was Herod's Praetorium. The foundation of it is still there. And below that is the prison. And you can see it. Paul will be here for two years in that prison. And there's a big sign there that you can see. Below your feet is the prison in which Paul was prisoned by Felix, the governor of the Roman province. So, I mean, we know exactly where this is. We know exactly the, the specific place that's being referred to here and what it would have been looked like. And this was no palace. I mean, the Praetorium was. But the ba what was really the basement was a pretty dismal prison. And it's right along the coast. So it's very damp and very cold. But he would be there for two years, all total. All right, now he's in Caesarea. 
Yeah. Please. It says here uh, the order that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. That's right. Well, <clears throat> Herod, was he there? No, 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 no. This is uh, Herod. Uh, that's a great question. I should have explained it. This, this Herod the Great, who was the king of the Jews when Jesus was born, he died in 4 BC, but he had built Caesarea. Caesarea didn't exist, so he built it. He built the entire port city, and he built one of his palaces there. And so, I mean, when he died, uh, his son Archelaus ruled from there, but he was deposed by Rome. That's where the Roman governor would live. He would live in the Herod's Praetorium. That was the palace that Herod had built. Uh, well, approximately 39 B.C. or so. That's still called Herod's Palace because he's the one who built it. But that was the governor's That's where the governor lived, yeah. Yeah. Okay? I, oh, I, it, I'd love to just take you all there and show you that. That's really neat to see that. Caesarea is a really neat place to visit. But that won't happen. At least with me it won't happen. Verse 1 of chapter 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman. What does it mean came down? Going down from 2,500 feet above sea level down to the to sea level, to the coast. So that's what that means. So they're making that 62-mile trip. So they take the Roman governor and the tribune, they take that request, they're going to show up. Now it tells us something. One of them was Tertullus. Now, we know from extra-biblical evidence that Tertullus was a lawyer. So the inference we draw, and I think it's a legitimate inference, is that Tertullus was a lawyer hired by the Sanhedrin to present this case. He is not a member of the Sanhedrin. He's probably a hired lawyer. He's a Alan Derskovitz type of guy, or a who are some of the other really high-priced, famous attorneys that everybody hires. Um, would he have been um, a Jewish lawyer, or would he have been a Roman lawyer? The name Tertullus is a Latin name. Yeah, it's a Latin name. Now, again, is he trying to present it to a, to a Roman court? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're being smart here. I, I'm assuming that's a legitimate inference, and I think it is. Uh, it's not a Jewish name, and he, it, it would indicate, because of some of this extra-biblical stuff, this is that lawyer It's referred to in extra-biblical material. So they hired him. And, I, I mean, Fred's right. I mean, it would, it would make sense to hire somebody that is very adept at Roman law and knows Roman procedures of law, due process rights. So he's going to be presenting the case on behalf of the Sanhedrin, before the Roman governor Felix. <clears throat> they laid the, before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. And the him is, of course, Paul, saying, now what Luke does is he quotes or paraphrases uh, what Tertullus, the attorney, is saying to Felix, the governor, about Paul. Now, <laughs> look at this first statement as he is addressing since through you we enjoy much peace now this is Tertullus speaking to Felix the governor and by the way that is not true they absolutely hated him 
But when you're speaking to somebody who is powerful and you want to get, you're going to butter him up. And since you, since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. We don't really believe that, but we're just telling you that. That's my little comment. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Now the charges are brought by Tertullus, speaking for the Sanhedrin, against Paul. I want you to note there are three charges. Charge number one. We found this man a plague. That is a great translation. A plague. It's a metaphor, but a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. You talk about hyperbole. But what is they say? What's the charge? If you were to distill it down into one phrase, what's the charge? This guy's a political agitator. And you guys aren't interested in that. You who represent the Roman Empire, you don't want disorder. You don't want political agitators, right? Charge number two. He's a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. Boy, that's a clever way to put it. Because the one thing Rome was always sensitive to were these tiny little sectarian movements that created trouble. Why would he phrase it, a sect of the Nazarenes? Why would he phrase it that way? Because Jesus is from Nazareth. He, he, he's part of that sect of Nazarenes. It came from Nazareth, that strange, weird guy that you guys killed a couple of decades ago. It's still around. I'm going to give it a label. We're going to call him the sect of the Nazarenes. I mean, that's a, that's a very degrading way to refer to the church. That that's what he's doing. Remember, he's trying to make the case before a Roman governor who can care less about these theological issues. All he's interested in is representing Rome, Rome well and staying in his job because his, his job is very fragile. By the way, he is on his way out, and the new guy's on his way in. We'll find out a little more about that later on. The third charge, he even tried to profane the temple, meaning the temple in Jerusalem, but we seized him. Now, in a sense, what he's trying to do is this third charge proves charge one and charge two. Charge one, that he's a political agitator. Charge two, that he's part of this sect. And uh, the proof is what he did in Jerusalem, trying to profane the temple. Now, you know as well as I do, Felix, you don't want trouble on Temple Mount. That's the most volatile, unpredictable piece of real estate in your empire. So you, you know that you want peace there. He was trying to stir up trouble. But we stopped him by examining him 
you yourself will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Now, with the charges clearly laid out, as you talk to him, you're going to see we're right. Okay? I mean, you can tell this guy's, this, this guy's like the you know, high-priced attorneys that we hire today that really distill things down into clear bites that everybody can understand, that you set it up so perfectly that the evidence is almost irrelevant. So it's masterful. But there's no charge, again, of any Roman infraction. Well, political agitator, a sect, leader of a sect, and stirring up trouble in Temple Mount. So these are all emotional things that are really sensitive in how Rome looks at things. So the issue is, can now, now the issue is, can they really prove this? Because they're going to now talk to Paul. I mean, Felix is going to talk to Paul. Verse 9 just tells us the Jews, the Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. They literally, they, the, the, the word there, charge, is, is a military term which could be translated attack. They joined in the attack. So, I mean, what they're doing is they're, they're trying to depict to this Roman governor, Paul is a real enemy of yours. Rome is watching Judea. Judea is always very volatile and unpredictable because it's the buffer state of the Parthian Empire to the east. And they're watching you, Felix. And we are joining in the attack to protect you, Felix. So, I mean, you know, how can he say no to all this? It's, I'm, I'm embellishing this a little bit, trying to make it exciting. It, I mean, see what's going on? This is really, really well thought through strategy. So when the governor nodded to him, the hymn would be Paul to speak, Paul replied. And his reply goes through verse 21. So I want to take the time to take it apart as we go through it. All right, any questions, comments? Everybody with me with what Luke's doing here as he recounts this? So, so he's presenting his whole case, his whole charge at one time before uh, the governor here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very well, very well, very well, th- well thought through presentation, hitting at things that are really sensitive to Rome, and uh, I mean it's just it's you know not in an improving way, but it's brilliant what he's done. Now, can the evidence sustain this? Let's look at what Paul says. Starts in verse uh, uh, verse ten. There. Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation. Now he's addressing Felix, as I mentioned earlier. Felix was governor of Judea from AD fifty two to AD fifty nine. I <laughs> I love this. I cheerfully make my defense. I like that. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues of the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now bringing against me. So verse 12 and verse 13 refute charge three about profaning the temple 
Being a political, it proved he was a political agitator in charge of a sect. You know, so it was 12 days. And they can't prove what they just said about me in that time I was there. Nothing happened. But, verse 14, this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so the way is an early name of the church, which Tertullus is calling a sect to get the attention of Rome. Rome didn't like sect. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. What did Paul just do? Through Christ into them. He brings Christ into it, but what else is he bringing into it? I worship the same God. They worship the same God. They read the same books. They believe the same prophecies. We are not a sect. If you're going to call us a sect, you have to call the whole Jewish nation a sect. Because we believe the same God. And why does he say the God of our fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob which resonates throughout the entire book, all books of the Old Testament. I mean, Paul is being just as shrewd as Tertullus. We are not a sect. We worship the same God. We, read, we follow the same law. We read the same prophets. And then the clincher, having a hope in God. What's the specific content of the hope? That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The Old Testament taught that. The Old Testament saints believed in that. So, verse 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. Remember, alms are offerings to the poor that sown in Jerusalem. And to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, which is right. Remember, you've got to go back to the previous chapter where he did purify himself, and he did offer the offerings and pay for the offerings. Paul said it was while I was in the temple after purifying myself that they get upset. But some Jews... From Asia, those outside of Jerusalem, not the people in Jerusalem, those outside of Jerusalem, they ought to be here before you. They're the ones who made the accusation. They're the ones who stirred things up, and they're not even here. You should bring them here. Oh, this is so cool. Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. The men that came with Tertullus that are mentioned in verse 1 of this chapter. Felix, 
ask them what they found when I was interrogated before the council. Do you remember what the Pharisees said at the council? We find nothing wrong with this guy. There's no accusation against this guy. So Paul's saying, tell, ask them to tell you what they concluded at the council. See what Paul's doing? He's trying to divide them again. The ones who really bought the accusation are the Jews from Asia, and they're not here. Oh, and by the way, Felix, ask them. Ask them what conclusion they reached when I appeared before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. What has Paul just done? He's neutralized all three charges. He's not a political agitator. He's not the leader of the sect of Nazarenes. He's a Jew following exactly the same thing that these guys represent. Same God, God of our fathers, same prophets, and so on. And the issue is not, Felix, the issue is not sedition, which is what they want to charge me with. Political agitator, leader of a sect, and causing trouble in Jerusalem. This is a religious issue. It's a theological issue. And it revolves around one doctrine, the resurrection. That's why I'm here, Felix. Isn't Paul smart? I mean, isn't this, I mean, he's just, he just is shrewd and calculating and careful as Tertullus was. But you read, as Luke has done, you read what Paul has done. Point for point, he's neutralized each one of the charges and brought it to the key apex. Felix, the issue is the resurrection. That's not an issue of sedition, is it? Is the Roman Empire, is that in their codified law? Is that what they're upset about? It isn't sedition. It's a theological point. That's why I'm here. All right, any questions? Oh, this would be a great thought paper in a thousand words or less. Summarize the charges of Tertullus and in detail summarize how Paul answers each charge. And then the concluding question, is he guilty of those charges? Wouldn't that be fun to write that? Any questions? Any, any, everybody with me? Verse 22. I want to finish this. How much do I have here? Oh, I think we can do this. But Felix, now this tells us something about him. Look at, look at how this is described. Having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. How did he have an accurate knowledge of the way? He was married to a Jewish girl. His wife was a Jew. Now, I'm, I'm making an inference there. It may be, a, may be a logical leap, but it's a reasonable leap that she may have been the one that helped him understand who these people were, the way. He put them off. The Greek phrase there that's translated put them off, it's really one Greek word, and it's really difficult to, to I'm not sure they've done a good job in translating this. What he really wants to do, put them off, he's bringing this hearing to a conclusion. 
It doesn't mean he's putting them off. And that's why the translation isn't that really good. It sounds like he's putting them off, you know, dismissing them like that. That's not really what it means. It's kind of a legal term. He's, he's bringing this hearing to a conclusion. He's tabling the motion. Well, in a way, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, Joe. There you go. That's a better way to that's a better way to translate it, because put them off in our language, our, you know, the way we, uh, kind of like a, a, a colloquialism or a saying, putting them off. That's a derisive term. Putting them off. That's not what it means. So, this saying: When Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So, so he's going to wait for Lysias the Tribune who wrote the letter that we read earlier. He's coming down. Then I'm going to make a decision. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept, that he is Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that none of his sins should be prevented from attending to his needs. So it's not a house arrest, but sort of a quasi-house arrest where he's going to be able to receive visitors. Probably, although I, I can't, be definitive here, probably he's not chained to Roman soldiers here. That may have ended uh, in that time. So, now verse 24. We find out about his wife, Drusilla. And some days late, of, of, and after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Drusilla is Jewish. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, now that may or may not mean anything to you, but she was the daughter of Herod Agrippa, who was the grandson of Herod the Great. So she's in that Herodian family. And so that Felix married her is very, very significant. And so with Felix now and his Jewish wife, the, the, great, the granddaughter, would that be, or great-granddaughter, of Herod the Great, sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. So, I mean, what does that mean? What is Luke summarizing for us? Felix and Priscilla call Paul, and Paul starts to talk to them about Jesus and talk to them about what he accomplished. Talk to him, and particularly with Drusilla in mind, that Jesus is the Messiah, and asking them to respond to all of this content in faith. The way we would put it in the 21st century, he witnessed to them. He gave them a copy of the four spiritual laws. He gave them a copy of the Gospel of John, and he asked them to read the first ten chapters. I'm kidding. I made all that up the last two sentences. But, I mean, he is doing, he's made a very effective witness using those faith, Jesus, Messiah. And as he reasoned with, look at these words. As he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. The Greek word is emphobos. We get a word phobia, fear from that. 
So this really got Felix's attention. Now look at those three words about righteousness. The righteousness of God. The righteous demands of a holy God. And the need for a lifestyle of self-control, which a Roman governor did not practice, and of the coming judgment based on those two. Felix is alone. Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And Luke then puts sort of a parenthesis and says, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, which was the typical practice of an influential prisoner. What would be another word for money given by Paul? A bribe. He expected, despite everything that Paul had said, he kind of expected him, he's going to offer him a bribe, which was the normal thing in the corrupt system of the Roman Empire. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. I wish Luke was more specific because the next verse, when two years had elapsed. Paul was in that prison for two years, A.D. 57 to A.D. 59. Would you, like to we'll, a, would you like to be a fly on the wall? Yes. At the, at the, oh. the, white, oh. the white throne judgment? Oh, my goodness. Will Felix ever be able to stand before God at the great white throne judgment and say, I never knew about you? No. As a matter of fact, he had so much revelation, so much clarity of revelation, but there's absolutely no evidence that he responded in faith to this. It's one of those very sad elements in the New Testament. Here's a man had a Jewish wife who knew all of the heritage and all of the teaching. Hearing someone like Paul, and it says often, I wish, I, I wish we knew how often, how many times in that two-year period did he summon Paul? How many times did he do it? We don't know. But I doubt that they talked about the beautiful Mediterranean that they can look out and see, and that is just gorgeous to stand there and see. It's a beautiful sight. I doubt that they talked about fishing that day. Paul was talking to him about Jesus. And I would think, although I, you know, I just don't, we don't know, but I would think Felix had, Felix had questions. Drusilla had questions, maybe. She was hardly a paragon of virtue, by the way. She, it's quite a reputation. But Felix is on his way out. He had lost favor with the empire and others. And so he is replaced by Porcius Festus. Wouldn't, if there's any name I would not like to have, it's Festus. I hope none of you have a middle name of Festus. But it's, just, it's Latin, of course. But Porcius Festus. Yes, oh, I'm sorry, John. How long did he serve as a governor? I think... From A.D. 52 to what? A.D. 52 to A.D. 59. 59. We're right here at this point in verse uh, 27 is where he is replaced. He's out and the new guy's in. John, 
when, when he's in prison and he's being sent for from time to time and he's in there two years, um, how, do, how do you perceive um, Paul's growth as a Christian? Is he in suspension or is he drawing closer to the Lord, learning? And yes, all that. I mean, you know, it it would have been uh, it would have been a time where Paul is absolutely convinced that he always was. This is where God wants me. I'll serve God, and so he's having this opportunity to appear quite a lot before Felix, but as well as Roman soldiers and lots and lots of others, as well as his friends, because. Feel it, gave him the opportunity to meet with friends. So I would think it's a time, there is there is also some evidence that he wrote one or two of his books here. So Paul isn't just sitting around watching TV. I mean, he is very busy, very active, in a lot of different, ministering to people, talking to people, writing letters, uh, and so on. So, I mean, it, it would have been an enriching time, but he's growing in his faith and trust. Because remember something God told him twice, you are going to Rome. So Paul's just waiting for God to act. While I'm waiting for God to act to get me to Rome, I'm going to write letters, I'm going to minister to these people, and I'm going to have lots of opportunities to talk to Felix, and which he does. And so, I mean, uh, that to me, that's, you know, Paul's looking at this in a, in a way that is hard for a lot of us because we don't look at it that way. Whatever God has me to do, I'm where he wants me to do, even though I'm in prison, and it's a damp, dark, but I, this is where God wants me. You know, you know this from Philippians chapter 1, but Paul's mission statement is, for his life, his mission statement is what? For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's his mission statement. And whatever God has him doing, it's, he's doing what God wants him to do. And he's not upset by these things. He looks at each one as a challenge that God is giving him to represent him, that is God, in this particular situation. And he's speaking before one of the most powerful men in the Eastern Mediterranean. The Roman governor. It's kind of exciting to have that perspective on life. I pray for that perspective every day of my life. But I am not Paul, believe me. And I don't look at things the way Paul looks at things all the time. Let's look at Felix now. He's he's out. Now Festus is in. Porcius? What a Latin name. Good night. Look at the last part of verse 27. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So even as he's on his way out, Felix is still trying to placate the Jews. He's in the prison. Could he pardoned Paul? He could have. He could have pardoned him. He said, I don't find any guilt. You know, he told us earlier that he's going to wait for Claudius Lysias, the Roman tribune, to come down. Then I'll decide in two years. He either was hoping for the bribe, hoping something else would happen, but he's out. Now Festus is in. All right. Yes, Ed. Do you think maybe he, well, it would just be conjecture, that he was maybe getting bribes from the Jews? Oh, that would not be at all outside the realm of possibility. Absolutely. 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 Very, very reasonable that that's occurring. Now, we're at chapter 25, and we're, we're going to start to... Um, uh, we're going to start to get into Paul's journey, which we're going to look at quickly because chapter 27 is his journey, shipwreck and all that. But chapter 25 and part of 26 is kind of neat. Now, what time is it? Okay. 
Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, so he's just showed up as the governor, where did he go? He went up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Why do you think he did that? Wants to clear the slate. Possibly to deal to get this get this dealt with. If you're Roman governor of Judea, what must be your priority? Jerusalem. It's got to be your priority. And so, if Jerusalem has got to be your priority, that means you have to befriend and get to know the Sanhedrin. Now, whether he knew that intuitively, or whether they were his instructions, or whether uh, Felix had told, we don't know. But um, Luke is very clear. By the way, I've never told you this, but Luke would have had access to the Roman archives because he was a Gentile and presumably a Roman citizen. It was not outside your purview to have access to Roman archives. So some of the stuff he quotes and some of the, like the, the, uh, the letter from Claudius Lysias, that may have been in Rome. So I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is he's a good historian. So some of this detail right here, he may know this from consulting the Roman archives. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, Asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem. Now, don't look at the dash, just stop right there. That's not, that's, they're not covering up much there. Because certainly, because Festus knows this situation, presuming knows something about the case, he would, even before they say it, because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. So now Festus is facing, okay, and even as, as Ed said in relation to the favor at the end of verse 20, um, uh, chapter 24, this favor may be additional bribes or whatever. But they're trying to get Paul, excuse me, they're trying to get uh, Festus on their side of this dispute. And they're saying, look, Festus, you want to get rid of this situation, right? You want to start your rules, governor of Judea, fresh, get all the old things out of the way. Look, the best thing to do is listen. Get him to come to Jerusalem, and we'll take care of the problem for you. Felix, for reasons we're not quite clear what all, he let him hang around for two years. But look, get, get this off your plate. We'll take care of this. Just let him, send him back to Jerusalem. Those 40 guys are getting real hungry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Wow, that's instructive. Festus is not going to be bought off by these guys. Well, we don't know and don't have enough, 
we know a little bit more about Felix than we do about Festus in terms of who he is and his popularity and so on. But he's too being shrewd here because he certainly knows this. Paul's a Roman citizen. Due process rights are guaranteed to Roman citizen. And possibly he knew about the details of what had happened two years earlier with Felix. Don't know that for sure. But he's being very wise here. I'm not going to send him back to Jerusalem because you're going to kill him. I want to hear the charges all over again. So a bunch of you guys come back to Caesarea with me and bring the charges. We're going to have a hearing. And, and I, I guess you can infer by this and by the commander that if Paul would have been killed while being held, that would have been bad. Yeah, that 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 could that could be a very depending on how things unfold, a very dark mark for a new Roman governor. Well, Caesarea was the center of the government. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it didn't make sense for him. To, on what basis am I sending him back to Jerusalem? So I mean, there's just they're trying to get him to do what they want him to do, but he's not biting. Jim, you had your. I was just saying, most any organization, if you change, even if you change the leader. The staff is still there, and they know the story, and they know the history, and they're probably advising him, giving him the background on it. Because mm-hmm. this had been hanging around for two years. So, I mean, as much as he may want to get it over, he is not going to do it impulsively or quickly. And I think you're right, Jim. He had a lot of advisors that would have been carryovers from Felix. Isn't this exciting stuff? I mean, it really is. All right, let's, let, let me do one more thing before we stop. Verse 6. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, meaning in Jerusalem, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. Now, that word seat in Greek is bema. Now, all that that, that can actually mean a literal bema. What it means is, now, Felix, this is one of the first things he does as a new governor. He sits in the, he sits in the bema probably in the marketplace, but it doesn't tell us exactly. So now he's ready to hold court. He's ready to hold court. I'm in the Bema tribunal. When he had arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, the him is Paul, that they could not prove. So it's the same old, same old. If you want to know how Paul responds, come back next week. Because there are going to be two more really neat things that are going to occur. And in addition to Paul's defense, this is really exciting stuff. Uh, So I hope you're hanging in here with me and and understanding this. And uh, I hope all of you will do the thought paper for this week. That's a fanciful hope in my part, isn't it? Anyway, I hope you're with me and are being blessed by this. Let's pray here. Lord, you're the sovereign Lord of history. And you had Paul just where you wanted him. Even though he's suffering and in a dark, damp prison and is there for two years, I don't think Paul was in any way demoralized by this. You promised him he was going to go Rome. And he trusted you besides every his whole perspective in life to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm not going to die because God told me I'm going to Rome. So whatever he wants me to do, I'm going to represent him even in this prison. 
He did so before Felix. Oh, Lord, as one of the Fred, I think it was, said to have been a fly on the wall to hear those conversations, those Q&As between Paul and Felix. One thing Luke tells us, he talked to him about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And he told Drusilla and Felix that Jesus is the Savior, Jesus, and the Christ, the Messiah. Clear revelation, clear witness before these very powerful people. And Lord, that's what he's going to do with Festus. And then he's going to do it with Herod Agrippa I and Bernice, his wife. And there's just this constant witness that Paul's going to give to the most powerful people in the Eastern Mediterranean. He's your witness. You had him right where you wanted him. And Paul is a remarkably faithful apostle. We are not apostles, but each one of us has an assignment. Each one of us has divine appointments. Each one of us has responsibilities. We want to be faithful to you. We want to represent you. And thanks for the time to be refreshed and renewed around the word of God this hour together. We ask this now in your son's name. Dismiss us with your blessing. Amen. See you next week.